Good morning, church. So good to see you. Why don't you take a seat? Before I hand over to Pastor Steve for the message this morning, as you, most of you will know that we're in a, a season now where we are heading into a building program. And so, you know, just for a few weeks, we're going to quickly cover what it is that we're doing right now and invite you to be part of that. Um, so if you're not aware, we're, we uh, have a, a new... or We've worked on a master plan for this whole property and there's um, a new building that we're going to be building just to the, if that's the southern end of the building, we're just going to say um, to accommodate our next generation ministry. So particularly kids and youth and uh, lots of other things. And, uh, you know, each week we look at the kids that are in the, uh, the, in the Hills Kids program here and we're bursting at the seams in some ways and say, you know, this is the right time for us to do something. But what we need to do is, as a family, is uh, all play a, a part in that. And, and as the church, we need to um, say, God, we need to be praying and saying, God, what is my part to play in this? And so um, for this few weeks, we're all asking you to consider what you would do. And so in your bulletin this morning, if you haven't already got one, you'll find a little pledge card. And we invite you to, um, to pray together if you're, uh, if you're in a, a married relationship about what it is that God would have you give. If, if you're, you're um, not married, then obviously it's between you and God and you'd work that out and you'd um, fill in that card and drop it in the box at the information desk that's near the front door there. There's two spots there that we would ask you to think about giving towards. The first one is a foundation gift. That's basically um, what's the one-off gift that God would have you give to help us, um, you know, essentially want to borrow as little as possible, right? Because we don't want to pay too much interest. And so I'd ask you to think about that. And the second thing is what would be your ongoing contribution, your ongoing commitment? We've calculated as a board that um, for us to meet all the objectives of stage one, which is a new building and um, relocating the op shop under there as well. And, and so that means we'll be demolishing the old building at the top of the driveway and relocating the chapel into another spot. There's a new amenities block. There's a new um, kitchen plaza type area as well. And lots of great spaces for us to do ministry within. Um, and we calculated that if about 80 givers within the church would contribute on average $32 a week, then we could meet the, the uh, payments needed for that particular uh, loan facility that we would have to take out. And so that's just to give you a sense of what the need is. Next Sunday is the 3rd of November, the first Sunday of the month. And that will be the last Sunday that we ask that you would um, give your pledge cards in so that we can see where we're at. And then we'll be able to announce that and celebrate uh, where we're going, where God is taking us. There's lots of things in this project, and I can't cover them in just this little five-minute segment on a Sunday morning. And so you're invited to come and, and speak to myself or one of the elders or one of the, the building committee members. Um, you, if you don't know who they are, then um, I can help you with that as well. And there's also some uh, images on the partition over there that you're welcome to go and have a look at. And I've seen people doing that over the last couple of weeks. So this is a significant moment in the life of Hills Church. And that's why we're taking a few weeks to talk about it. And you might think, he's up there talking about that again. And this is, but it's important. It's important that everybody gets a chance to, to prayerfully consider how they could be involved in that. Before I uh, hand over to Pastor Steve, I want to actually pray about this um, because we believe God is leading us in this direction. Um, you know, we, there's also bigger plans about how we do better interacting with our, with our community around us, with our existing ministries, and, 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 and what that means for um, building development and things like that. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, 
uh, we've been talking and praying about this for um, a long time now. And, you know, we, we just want to keep bringing it to you, God, and asking your, for your will to be done. We want to um, ask you, Lord, to keep, to keep guiding us and keep, to keep bringing wisdom and vision into where we're heading as a church and what it is that you can see this church doing in this neighborhood more and more. And, you know, um, we believe it's your heart, God, and therefore our heart that many people around this church would encounter Jesus, would encounter salvation in your name, um, along with lots of other things that we, that we love to bring, which is justice and mercy and support and help for those in need, God, in, in this place in Brisbane. And so, again, God, we're, we're seeking your hand at work. And, uh, you know, we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We believe, God, that this is your prayer for us, that your kingdom expand in this area, that um, people experience heaven on earth, just like your prayer said, when, well, they, when, they bring, um, when you bring healing, when you bring restoration, and you bring, uh, you bring your Holy Spirit into people's lives, when you bring holiness. And Lord, you know, the message of the gospel is not just for us already in the church. It's for so many more. It's for everyone. That's what your word says, and we believe it. And we think we've got a part to play in that. We're asking God to build your church. We're asking, Lord, to send your Holy Spirit's power within your church. We're asking, God, um, that your kingdom expand here in the Hills District and beyond, in this north side of, of Brisbane, not just in this church, but in all the churches that surround us. And God, we're asking um, specifically now, as we um, think about the property that you've given us and what our investment is for the future generations. We're asking, God, that you would provide, you would supply, and, Lord, that you would um, show each and every one of us what it is our part is to play. We thank you, God, for the privilege of being your children and for serving you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Steve. Morning, church. How are you going? How are you going, church? You going all right? Excellent. Good. Uh, no expectation, but this sermon, sermon has been 12 months in the making, uh, so that shouldn't put any extra pressure on me. But last year, I spoke about um, Philippians 3. Paul says, forgetting what is past, I move on and press on towards the goal and win the prize. And I spoke about spiritual growth, I guess. But... Those words about forgetting what is past really haunted me. Sorry, I'm not quite even. Anyway, um, those words about forgetting what is past haunted me. And I know that Paul's talking about, on some level, about, in a spiritual sense, I've got to let go of the past and the old religious stuff that I used to do and how I used to do things, and now that I follow Christ, I must do something different. I must do something radically different into the future. But I can't help but wonder whether there's something more personal in there for Paul in those words. Because his job, he has a very checkered past. Some of us have a checkered past. This guy's a shocker. Okay? 
He, he spent, his job before he came to faith was essentially to stamp out the threat of Christianity by any means possible, including violence. And we know that he um, was, was present and ordered the execution of a number of Christians. And yet here he is later, later on, probably 20 years later, sitting in a prison cell, writing letters to churches, writing letters about faith and stuff like that, um, is this not right? It's going to keep bugging me. Sure, if you want. <laughs> Have I not got it? I'm just going to dress the pastor here. <laughs> <laughs> it's still not sitting right. Anyway, maybe it's just my head. Anyway, uh, so anyway, here's Paul sitting in this prison cell 20 years after he's done this, and you can't tell me that on some level he's not thinking. I can't believe what I did. I can't believe that I ordered the execution of people who I'm now writing to churches and inviting people to come and believe this stuff. I can't believe my past. And my background's in the police force. I spent a lot of years probably with, the, probably with some very, very bad people in the world. And... Um, People racked by guilt by their past mistakes, okay? And a few of them are probably sitting in a prison cell today and and other days, caught in this cycle of guilt, and they're just assuming that that their greatest mistake is the the best that life will will, will ever be. And the truth is that us Christians are not immune from guilt, we're not immune from mistakes and everything else. We're not, maybe we're not as bad as Paul and those other bad people, right? But it could be serving God that went wrong. It could be any number of things. It could have been a business opportunity. It could have been a job. It could have been a relationship. It could have been just any number of... It could just be Wednesday as a parent, right? It could, it could just be any, anything in the past, and you know what? I reckon one of Satan's favourite tricks is to tie your identity or your value as a person to your greatest mistake. That's what he does. Okay? And you're a failure. You're a loser. You're a bad parent. You're, a, you're just a bad whatever. Okay? And if he can do that, you're going to spend your lifetime sideline from where God can use you. Church, it's a lie. It's a lie. Because your, because your identity is not determined by your greatest mistake or a label that somebody puts on you. It's determined by what your saviour did for you on a cross 2,000 years ago. I suppose the question here is, why does God allow so many Christians to wrestle with this idea of guilt and, and their past and their shortcomings and all that sort of stuff? Why doesn't he just take it away and make life easier for us? Because that would be the, the, the better option, right? I reckon one of the, one of the greatest examples of, of guilt in the Bible is, is David and Bathsheba. And we all know the story. King David goes into damage control after the affair. He, he tries to find a way out. He tries to minimise what he's done. And he essentially orders the execution of, um, of Bathsheba's husband. And then he marries her. On the, on the surface level, 
He's trying to keep all these, he's trying to keep everything looking all right. Okay? He's just trying to keep everything going until the prophet Nathan hits him with it. And like the prophet Nathan's going to hit me with a microphone right now. For me. I'm okay with this. It just means I'm going to be using his hand a lot, okay? You know what? Prophet, the prophet Nathan hits, hits King David with this, with this, you're in the wrong. And David could respond in any number of ways, but instead he pens one of the most honest and genuine words in the Bible that you'll ever see. So here's Psalm thirty. Uh, sorry, Psalm fifty-one, the first seven verses. I just want you to remember the the emotion in these words for this guy. If you think the Bible's a book full of stories, and it may be on occasion, this is real life. Rubber hits the road stuff. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognise my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is wrong. Sorry, lost my place. I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. First thing I want you to tell, I want to tell you about guilt. Guilt is actually meant to serve a purpose. It's meant to do something. It's meant to direct us to God. That's the starting point. Okay? Guilt done God's way doesn't crush us beyond the point of repair. It doesn't keep us stuck. It points us to God so that the healing process can begin. Okay? I'm just, I'm just impressed in here that David doesn't seek to minimise or to shift the blame or to otherwise explain away what he did. He just owns it. What a, a man of God, they own it. That's exactly the process. He owns that. His first action is about aiming to restore that link with God. The, but here's the problem, Right? We live in a world when we experience guilt, we run from it because it makes us feel bad. And we've been taught in our world that if you feel bad, then you shouldn't feel that way. So just ignore it and just get away from it. Okay? What we see in David's example is that when he's confronted with it, he owns it and he moves forward. Um, it's easy to try to, I think, probably just put it off and, and keep yourself busy, keep yourself... Internet, Netflix, the pace of life, all, all this sort of stuff. It's easy to get distracted and just, and, and just leave it alone. But not David. Guilt done God's way starts on your knees. It starts bringing it before God so that the healing can start. 
But to do that, David's actually got to own it. He's got to say, I'm sinful. He's got to own his own mistake. Many years ago in Biloela, I was doing some gardening, and that's usually a dangerous idea for me. Um, but I, got, I grabbed, this, grabbed this big palm branch and I uh, got a palm prong stuck in my hand and I'm like, oh, that's a bit of a shame. So I pulled it out and uh, the problem was solved, or so I thought. Now those things, I don't know about you guys, but they're really painful, right? They're really, really painful. And I, I knew the minute I'd pulled it out that it wasn't right. I knew the minute that I, that I, that I just, oh yeah, she'll, she'll, be, she'll be sweet. Ten days later, it's still swollen, it's still not right, and you're sitting there going, like, loading the gun at the police station with that? <laughs> just don't do it. Um, there, was this, there was this persistent pain. So I had to do my man thing and swallow my pride and go to the doctor. All right? So I did that, got the, got the x-ray, and there's still... Actually, there's a photo, I think, here. There's still about a centimetre in there. And um, the only solution for, for that was to take it to the doctor... Let him have a dig around and find it and pull it out. There's, there's no other solution. You, you, can, you can leave it there if you want, but it's going to be very counterproductive. Okay? Now, here's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I've done something wrong and it's hurting me, it's causing me pain, so I'm going to take it to God and get it fixed and start the healing process Shame says, I'll just leave it there. Shame says, I'll just, I'll just leave it there and ignore it and I'll use my other hand and things will be sweet, right? And if I just ignore it, then it'll go away. And guilt is, I choose to recognise what I've done, bring it to God so it can be fixed. Satan can't use it against me. But if we don't go to God, guilt easily is one of those things that turns inside and, and turns into shame. And leaving it there will make you sick. Church, that's, a, that's, a, that's an unhealthy and it's a rotten way to live. Okay? It's a rotten way to live. Going to God is the starting point. Number two, it hurts. There's no other explanation for it. Guilt hurts, but it also helps. What's the next couple of verses? Verse 8. Give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Just just because David repents of what he's done and he owns his mistake doesn't mean that everything goes away and everything's sweet, does it? It still hurts. It still hurts. Life is going to have consequences. Sin is going to have consequences. And for David, there, there are some long-term consequences. If you look at the next couple of years of his life, it's punctuated by family trouble. Absalom becomes king and he essentially has to leave his kingdom as king with his tower between his legs. Okay? He, he has to walk away from everything he's built. The child that he has with Bathsheba dies. The, 
he essentially, his, his name and reputation are gone. They're tarnished forever. And he's got to do, he's basically got to run for his life because Absalom orders that the army get sent after him to, to, to kill him. This is a season like of open mutiny against, against the king. He runs for his life, but God uses the pain of that experience to give him perspective and encouragement about what he has to do next. I, I think if you read the text well and the ongoing stuff in, in, the, in the, the actual story itself, what you find is that the king who comes back is far more wiser, far more humble, and far more mature. He has his head on his shoulders. He comes back and he, it hurt, but God uses that stuff to, to move him forward. You know, each time um, <sighs> that palm prong got, stuck, got dug out of my hand by Dr. Tan. Now, Dr. Tan in Biloela has been there about 50 years, and he's the, he's the doctor who is known around the place, he doesn't mind causing a bit of pain, right? He's that, he's, he's that guy. He, oh, not there. Okay, well, let's try over. Anyway, so he has a bit of a dig. And essentially, it really hurt. Those painkillers wear off, and my goodness me, I knew I was alive. You know, it, it, it was, the, the aftermath of that was really, really sore. But you know that the problem is gone, and it's healed. That um, and each t- the reason I tell that story is because each time now that I walk out in my backyard and I look at a palm tree, I'm like, "You idiot!" I look at that scar in my hand that's still there, and I think, "I got to go find those gardening gloves. I got to go find something that's going to help this." Okay. And a couple of years ago, when we got a, we got a good quote, and that that tree kept kept. Um, causing dramas, I took a great deal of pleasure in ordering, cut that sucker down, right? And that's a good thing. That's what we've got to do with guilt. That's what we've got to do with guilt. After it goes to God, it's healed, but we then have to use that experience to guide the decisions that we make today. It's, the, it's, that, it's that opportunity to embrace more of God and more of his forgiveness and to go to God and say, create in me a clean heart. It's that we don't forget the past. We don't forget. We do remember the hurt that it caused us. But because of God's healing through his son, the pain of it doesn't impact anymore. That's profound stuff, isn't it? And there's a reason for it further than that. God's actually got a plan for it. Point three, God, sorry, guilt helps us humbly invest in the lives of others. I love verse 13. Then I will teach your way to rebels. And they will return to you. Down to 16. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. I, 
there's God's plan for guilt. Not to be defined by it, not to stay stuck in it, but to give it to God, learn from it, and let God redeem it for his glory. Okay? God wants to be able to use your experiences and your shortcomings to spur other people on and challenge them. And I think essentially point people to the same place you found healing. That's what he's after. When you find healing from Jesus, you point people to the same place you found it. You know, I'm, I'm stunned by this stuff. I, I love the fact that God loves using people who by all worldly standards have blown it and who are teachable and humble and repentant as being the people who make the biggest and most significant impacts for his kingdom. I love that about God. I love the fact that God uses a a king who has made massive mistakes to record some of the most honest and amazing words so people can find healing in, in thousands of years after this. I love the fact that God uses a murderer to be his chosen vessel to get the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. In fact, I re- Brennan Manning, the guy from the Ragamuffin Gospel, actually has this to say. In a futile attempt to erase our guilt, we deprive the community of our healing gift. If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, our inner darkness cannot be illuminated by God's grace. And it can't become a light for others. We, we live in a world that is... Be careful, Steve. We live in a world that is essentially... Your appearance is as good as the surface. Whatever you, whatever you put on your Facebook page as your profile picture, that's, that's what you are, okay? We live in this world of surface appearances. And God ain't interested in us being people of, of superficial stuff. He's interested in people of substance. We run from honesty and we run from God's healing just to convince everybody else that we've got it together and we don't. Okay. I think God's, God's plan for guilt is, is, is I, think, I think it's found in Galatians 6. I've been looking at these words a lot. Share one, share each other's burdens. In this way, obey the law of Christ. Now watch the humility. If you think you are too important to help somebody, you're only fooling yourself. You ain't that important. Okay? Our stories of guilt and our stories of of our shortcomings, when they're lived out in humility and loved and love in community, don't convince people that we're awesome, but they convince people that there's healing to be found in Jesus Christ. God doesn't call us to be people of superficiality. He calls us to be people of substance, where our relationships cost us something. Not just the, not just, not just the outward appearance. Relationships cost us. They cost us a coffee over out here on the deck after church when I don't feel like it today. They cost me a coffee during the week with some people when I could be at work. They cost me a 
a late night phone call. They cost me some, some, some hospitality sort of stuff, some families getting together and all that sort of thing. They, they cost you, but that's exactly what God wants to do with your guilt. Use it. I'm just, I'm just thinking about guys, guys in my life who were honest enough and went through big, massive uh, shortcomings but use their story and their outcomes as examples of God's grace and they lived out what it means to do this well. And they lived with the guilt. They went through it with their families. They experienced God's love and forgiveness and they let God redeem it for his glory. And those are the guys that I went to when I was in guilt and said, how do I get out? Those are the people that we naturally gravitate to when we've got a problem as, as, as well, the people who have lived it out. God doesn't, he's not interested in superficiality. He's interested in building people of substance. And the, the truth is, our world's got no idea where to find this. And we've got to show it to them. So where do you go? Where do you go to start the healing thing? First observation. I think the first place you go is God's word. Now, I could be reading something into this that maybe is not there. Okay, I'm just going to be honest about that. But Paul could sit in his prison cell, sitting there going, I am a failure, and for, just, just talking about forgetting what is behind. He, he could be that guy. But I wonder in that space whether when, he, when, he, when he's reminded of his shortcomings and re, he's reminded of his failures that he doesn't read some other iconic words that he wrote in the scripture. I wonder if there's something personal for Paul in these words. Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Somebody say amen. Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Let's just skip over to verse 38. I am convinced that nothing, not even my guilt and my shame and my mistakes, can ever separate us from God's love. There's got to be something personal in that for Paul. There's got to be something that's lived out for him to write it. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, our fears about today, our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above, in the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I, can I just suggest that when you feel stuck, when you feel like you're, like you're in that place and things are just not working and you're, and you're sitting there going, how do I get past this? You go to God's word. You read about what God says about it rather than your feelings and you trust what he did about it. That's what you do. The other place you find healing 
is in God's presence and at the foot of the cross. It's no secret. It's been the same place for everything. About a month ago, we were away at um, camping about a month ago at Brunswick Heads, just, just over the border. And our kids are off doing the camping thing. They just get on their bikes and they're gone, okay? They're, they're off, you know, fishing or they're off paddle boarding or do, just doing something. And, and being a pastor, you just sit around and think about your next sermon. That's just what, what, what happens with holidays. Um, the, the kids are off having a ball and there's this kid who walks past me with a kite, and the kite is, effect, is, is effect, effectively sort of over his shoulder and dragging along the ground. And he's just doing this one. <laughs> so these little steps dragging this kite around. And all the kite's doing is it's going in the dirt. And I thought, isn't that what, isn't that exactly what guilt is? Isn't that what guilt is? It's, it's just the same thing, dragging stuff around that you don't have to hold that wasn't meant to be there in the first place. And I'm not suggesting for for a second church that any of this is easy, (laughs) because it's not. Um, It all starts at the foot of the cross. It all begins at the foot of the cross. Because without that cross... And without what Jesus did for us on it, we're still those people who are dragging that kite around going nowhere, aren't we? We're still those people who are dragging a kite around, living like our mistakes is all that will happen. But the Christian kite is not meant to be dragged. It's meant to be flown. Okay? It's meant to be flown. And you fly a kite when the wind is present. Full of life in his presence. Full of life, full of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is the thing that's full in your life, well, there's just no room for guilt. I think what God is intending for us to get this morning is that when we're full of what he did for us, we can't can't not spend our lives praising him that the one thing that could keep us tied up has been put right. Not forgotten, but forgiven and confessed and redeemed by our Saviour. We're going to sing a song about carrying your burdens, and I'm not, I'm not sure this is where this is going to go, but coming to the altar and to the feet of our Saviour and leaving our past there. Leaving our past there. Can I invite you, church, this morning? We don't have to be people anymore who are dragging that kite around. We don't have to be those people. And after our song, uh, you know, our prayer team will be here and they'll be happy to pray with anybody as well. But I just want to ask you if, you, if you're in that place this morning where you are carrying guilt and you ca- you've been carrying it too long and you know it's there, there's no other solution but bringing it before God into his presence and letting the healing begin. 
maybe God's nudging you or, or whatever that story is. And I, I just want to say, if, you, if you're serious about this, while we're singing the last song, why don't, why don't you come forward and just stand there in the presence of God? You don't have to, if you, if you want prayer afterwards, that's great. But you can just come and let it go. You can just come and let it go. This is not a moment for, for us to look at you. This is a moment between you and God. Like King David does in Psalm 51. It all starts. It all starts at the foot of that cross. It all starts coming to him and confessing that guilt because that's where the healing begins. We're not people of superficiality. We're people of substance. God, we want to thank you that you are not a God who left us where we could be, but you're a God who redeemed our past for a purpose. You're a God who came and bought healing, not to leave us behind, not to leave us stuck in the past, but to use it and redeem it for your glory. God, I want to pray for those people this morning who maybe, who maybe are, just, are just stuck. God, that this morning, when they come to you, that the healing would begin.